Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the latest edition of Credit Crunch. We're part of the Fix Focus podcast series brought to you by, well, us, the Fix Strategy Research Team here at Bloomberg. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me as ever, colleague Sam Geyer. Before diving in, a little public service announcement. If you like what we're doing with Fix Focus, and let's face it, you probably do, please take a moment to follow, comment, and share as that helps us to keep bringing great content to you. So today on Credit Crunch, Tactical Credit with Brandywine's John McLean. John and his team manage the Brandywine Global High Yield Fund. You know, they're winner of four consecutive U.S. Refinitive Lipper Fund Awards on risk-adjusted returns. John joined Brandywine with the acquisition of Diamond Hill Capital Management's High Yield Focused U.S. Corporate Credit Mutual Funds back in 2021. John, hey man, welcome to Credit Crunch. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That was a mouthful right there. <laughs> well, you know, we, we like to go fast and say a lot. But um, before diving into Lipper Awards, I guess, you know, the big question that I really have around those is, one, do you get a medal for that? And two, if you do, do you like you just wear them around the office like uh, Mr. T? Uh, so interestingly enough, I think you actually have to pay for the hardware and we're value uh, investors. So we we know we have it in spirit, right? Uh, I don't need I don't need a medal that says uh, that we won something. You know, our focus is always uh, delivering strong, risk adjusted returns on a go forward basis. So we don't want to be backward looking. All right. Well, maybe we can get you a t shirt with some mock ups with those. But uh, so perhaps maybe more germane. So listen, strong track record, obviously uh, impressive showing there. I guess maybe. Let's set the landscape here in terms of what do you attribute that track record to? Is it a you know, you're just sort of finding different uh, discrete areas in terms of value opportunities. Are you taking sort of outsized exposures? How do you manage that? Yeah, I mean, what, what's interesting is that we think across fixed income, there are structural inefficiencies. And really, as you get into the more esoteric parts of the fixed income landscape, things like high yield leverage loans, EM converts, and even to a degree IG, there are a lot of micro inefficiencies that are available for investors to exploit. And we're just continuously trying to take advantage of those inefficiencies. And really what we want to find is mispriced risk. And typically mispriced risk isn't around the business fundamentals. It's around structural inefficiencies. It's around um, ratings. It's around industries that are out of favor. It's around headline risk, career risk. These types of risks are much more interesting, liquidity risk, perceived liquidity risk, frankly, um, because when the market gets a liquid, everything gets a liquid. So I, I think what we try to do is find mispriced risk. What we try to do is manage through full market cycles as well. I think particularly in high yield, when we look at the competitive landscape, most managers are either all defense. So think of shorter duration kind of managers that uh, you know tend to protect well on the downside, but don't capture their fair share on the upside. And then the all offense type of uh, managers that use things like equities uh, to juice performance as well. And when things are good, they're at the top of the category, but when things are uh, struggling, uh, they certainly feel it. So we think that we have a truly differentiated approach in terms of 
being a more concentrated high conviction manager, thinking about uh, businesses on a go forward basis. You know, we, we spend a lot of time looking at things that equity colleagues would pay attention to. So management compensation. Um, we look at things like intangible assets as opposed to tangible assets. You know, the, the analogy that we typically use is uh, if you've got a manufacturing facility in Sandusky, Ohio, cost you a hundred million dollars, you know, typical credit analysis says haircut that by 50%, it's worth $50 million. But if your business goes out of business, who wants that? When you think about intangible assets, you know, we used to talk about Twitter, which used to be uh, in the high yield marketplace. And uh, we looked at the hundreds of millions of daily active users and the value that could be there. Certainly somebody was going to buy that. We didn't necessarily think it would be Elon Musk, but... um, (laughs) You know, there's value to intangible assets as well. Yeah, uh, the the company formerly known as Twitter, I think. Is I, what I we're can supposed never to say. That. <laughs> so I definitely want to. You, you sort of alluded to a lot of things that we're definitely going to pull on those threads as we go through uh, uh, today's call here. But before diving into the weeds, maybe we start a little bit more macro, right? Very dynamic marketplace that we've been in. Rates volatility uh, swinging left and right. Uh, but relative calm in terms of where high yield spend, spreads have really held in, investment grade uh, similar, uh, and, and generally positive flows, liquidity has been good, et cetera. What do you make of the landscape overall? I mean, it's it's sort of, it's it's almost hard to make sense of. Oh, it's a completely bifurcated market in terms of opinions, where the macro managers in general have, have kind of hated the risk in below investment grade and the micro credit focused managers have loved the opportunity set. So I think it's very much a, a, a different lens, if you will, in terms of uh, that perspective. But really what we've said from, from high yields perspective, really going back to early 22 was it was a market where no demand, uh, the asset class had been in structural outflows for, for about 18 months until that really turned around here over the last couple of weeks, met no supply. We've been in negative net supply for, for, for quite some time. And I think that's a huge tailwind. And it's actually kind of one of our uh, key themes for, for 2024 is that management teams are balking at issuing debt if they don't have to. The cost of capital has gone up 500 basis points over the past 15 to 18 months. And so if, if you don't need to raise debt, you're not going to. And so that shrinking uh, supply, that shrinking asset class is a structural, it's a structural technical uh, tailwind to, to performance. So you, you kind of alluded to in terms of one of your big themes for 2024, and I do want to actually sort of build on that there in terms of, you know, looking at 2023, I guess maybe what were your themes coming into the year? How did those play out? And then, you know, in addition to that sort of uh, structural mismatch or that sort of limited net supply uh, dynamic that you're talking about, what other things are you looking for in the year ahead? Yeah, absolutely. So our, our kind of two key themes that were, you know, we think to be underappreciated in the market and are showing themselves in 2023, one would be uh, creativity coming from the CFO suite. I think CFOs learned a lot during the GFC about how to structure your debt stack. And they learned a lot of, in terms of COVID about uh, access to depths and breadths of liquidity sources in below investment grade, which is kind of the second component of our key theme. You know, we were talking a lot about maturity walls in 2023, and frankly, we were not concerned, particularly in, in, in high yield, because companies borrowed at record paces at 
for, for long tenors at low coupons in 2020 and 2021. But really what we were trying to highlight to folks is saying that, look, below investment grade used to mean just U.S. high yield bonds pre-global financial crisis. Then you had the European market start to grow. Then you saw the leverage loan market come and really take off in 2014. Then you saw private credit really take off in 2018. And what we're seeing in 2022, 2023 is the convertible market also providing access to cheap interest rates for CFOs. So because uh, you've got all these different liquidity sources and because there's a lot of capital swimming around in the marketplace, companies can pull on a lot of different levers to maintain interest expense at the same types of levels that they are uh, currently borrowing at. You could issue converts, attach an equity uh, premium uh, to, to a, a company and buy down your cost of debt. You could switch from being unsecured to being secured, also allowing you to buy down your interest rate. And, and we're seeing a lot of that in the marketplace right now. So what that means, uh, you know, in, in terms of what's what's changing and what we think kind of the key trends for people to pay attention to in 2024. And again, the technical uh, structural tailwind for our asset class are two things. One, we touched upon the shrinking asset class. You know, high yield was, I think, across a trillion dollars in 2010. And it's been flat for the last decade. <laughs> and it's been shrinking meaningfully here uh, because management teams, you know, work for bondholders now. So what is fascinating and what we've seen, and it really started in 2022, was you looked at how management teams could allocate capital, dividends, share buybacks, M&A, typically all things that I don't love as a, as a lender. But debt buybacks became an opportunity in 2022, and it was all rate-driven, right? You, had, you have Chevron debt trading at $0.60 cents on the dollar on the long end. Clearly, that's not a stressed or distressed situation. It's just simply a change um, in interest rates that was, that was particularly meaningful. So what we're seeing is companies actively going out and buying back their debt. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in 2024, where if we stay in this elevated interest rate type of environment and you're a company that's generating really healthy free cash flow, as much of the investment grade market is doing, and you have long dated debt trading in the 70s and 80s or even lower, why not go buy back debt as opposed to buy back bond or buy back equity? Yeah, I mean, I guess the the challenge I've always had with with that, and it's you've certainly seen it in pockets. I think we see saw AT and T do it last year, and some others. Uh, but but it's just you know kind of doing it in a an efficient manner in terms of you know if you're doing it in tens and twenties, it can be hard to really do it in the scale that you need and without going out with a formal tender. So, I mean, you can obviously go out with a formal tender, but that's obviously not going to cost you 60, right? It's probably going to cost you at least 85, maybe 90 or 95. But but I, I definitely hear your point. I wanted to talk on the convertible piece real quickly, just in, in terms of the way that you run your fund, because it is an interesting area uh, and certainly that it's growing is, is pretty fascinating. For a fund like yours, do you ha- is it a long only play? I'm assuming you're not doing like an arbitrage play there. And then you do you have the ability to hold it into the conversion because you know a lot of times you you know the optionality there is worth a fair amount so you don't want to sort of convert it too prematurely. Yeah, exactly. It, it, typically, our focus is going to be on the busted side of the converts where we don't see kind of the balanced market trading. You know, between call it ninety five and one hundred and twenty cents on the dollar. Once we start getting into uh, meaningfully negative yields. I think that um, opportunity looks 
you know, much more equity like and, and isn't exactly what we've kind of conveyed to our uh, investors, what we're looking for. So what, what, what's particularly interesting is you saw a lot of high flying tech companies issue converts, particularly at the end of 20 and beginning of 2021, five years, zero coupon. So you have companies like Airbnb where the bond or the converts trading in the high 80s. And it's an opportunity to uh, play the front end in a very sound financially, uh, fiscally sound um, entity that you wouldn't otherwise have access to. And so that convexity is particularly interesting as too, because what we see in the convertible market is companies aggressively going after uh, their their low dollar price converts and uh, doing exchanges. And, that, and that's much more typical uh, than, than what you see in the traditional high yield or investment grade marketplace. The other opportunity is really when uh, you get the equity for free and you've got entities, the, the traditional um, high yield borrowers where you can potentially go to the front end of a debt stack. We would highlight opportunities like Cable One, uh, Marriott Vacation, um, ATSG, uh, Air Transport Service Group, as examples of companies where the converts are trading pretty in line with the straight bonds in terms of all-in yield, which means you get the equity for free. And many times you're getting lower dollar prices. And in certain instances, you're also moving to the front end of the debt stack. So you get all these things for free. And that's what we're really looking for is uh, you know an option that the market ascribes zero value to in a credit that is generating significant free cash flow and has the ability to pay back, uh, pay back debt. Right. So worst case, you're sort of creating the yield that you would get from just investing in the unsecured. And then if the option sort of hits, then big upside there. So I know Sam's chopping at the bit to sort of get involved here, but I do have one more just in terms of talking about the platform that you run there. You talked about a number of different asset classes, uh, uh, you know, all the hardware, certainly from the, the high yield side, but you're not just high yield, are you? No, exactly. I mean, I think we look across multi-asset. We have a, a larger multi-asset team at Brandywine that we collaborate with on a daily basis and, and plug into um, a, a much larger global opportunistic fixed income team. Um, yeah, you know, I think what we want to do is assess value across capital stacks. So again, we have an equity tilt. We're looking and talking to our equity colleagues on a consistent basis about thinking about how do you, what is the required rate of return for the equity that you're discounting in your cash flow models and comparing that to the returns that we're getting in the secured or unsecured bonds and thinking about the appropriate equity risk premium. And then we're looking and saying, as an example, in the convert market, well, if I can get the convert relative to the straight bond uh, at the same levels, why would I own the straight bond, particularly if I'm getting lower dollar price? And then we're looking at, obviously, the sister asset class of leveraged loans and, and paying attention to secured versus unsecured or peri secured bonds versus loans and thinking about convexity. And then we have the opportunity to identify interesting situations in emerging markets, hard dollar, uh, that I think are, you know, again, most uh, most managers stay in the high yield asset class. They stick to their their one sandbox. I think it allows us a, an ability to redirect capital, particularly when high yield gets tight. So when we think about 
a market like today where, uh, you know, the macro impression is probably a slowdown sometime in 2024. So the traditional high yield manager is going to upgrade their portfolio by buying double B's. Double B's get too tight. We have the ability to take that one step further and go into the investment grade market and identify cheaper triple B's than double B's uh, and, and pick convexity with bullet structures as opposed to callable structures that traditionally permeate the high yield asset class. So, John, I want to dig in a little bit uh, there on the the asset class side. And I know that you guys, uh, in talking to you uh, a couple of days ago, you mentioned you're a little bit more concentrated. So that might be uh, a more issuer centric on your guys' end in terms of the portfolio. But um, across those asset classes, how would you grade the value proposition on a scale of A to F in this case? And I guess digging in a little bit, maybe even on the high yield side, where do you see that particular value in terms of, of sectors there? Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I'll start with high yield. So from sector perspective, where we see a lot of value, um, gaming, leisure, certainly uh, we feel like the U.S. consumer is going to spend until they're, until they're broke and then they're going to take a HELOC out and spend even more on uh, trips to the casino and, and, and taking <laughs> carnival cruise lines. So, uh, you know, I, I think we're very constructive there. Uh, we're certainly constructive on energy and why we're constructive on energy is management teams got capital uh, discipline imposed on them really starting in 2014-15. You saw debt-fueled M&A lead to a lot of problems when the commodity price cracked. Now as a function of limited access to capital from uh, debt and equity investors relative to historical norms and ESG, these companies, uh, you know, understand that they have to live within their free cash flow. So that's particularly strong tailwind. We love financials right now, particularly uh, in investment grade, like the credit card issuers, Discover, Capital One, Synchrony. Uh, they're trading like high yield. They're investment grade companies. They don't have the deposit issues that, uh, you know, were a problem for regional banks six to nine months ago. Um so those are the areas that, that we like in high yield. We think high yield's probably on an A to F. Uh, I'll give it a B plus right now. It was an, it, it was a strong A three weeks ago, and then we saw a ton of capital <laughs> come into the asset class, which is always the case. Right. So, but, um, you know, we, we think high yield's particularly compelling because the low dollar price, uh, which creates upside opportunity. We talk about yield to outcome as opposed to yield to worst. So a lot of these companies get bought, companies tender for debt. You've got some real convexity baked into the marketplace. Love loans uh, massively outperformed high yield for the past 18 months because of the floating rate component. I think there are idiosyncratic opportunities there um, that are interesting. And I think what we're seeing is the OIDs that are being forced uh, uh, on issuers because of the lack of demand create interesting opportunities. Um, so I'd give Love loans probably a C minus right now. Um, EMs, typically, uh, a, a, a D. Uh, let's, 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 let's make sure we're, we're, we're delineating because there's a lot of different kinds of EM here. So, so when hard, you're dollar, EM, hard dollar corporates, only hard yeah. dollar corporates. Yeah, yeah. Local, is, uh, local could be interesting, but, uh, you know, uh, it is challenging. Uh, so I would say the problem with EM is that you get a lot of opacity uh, and you don't get a lot of excess yield. Uh, typically in the in the corporate space, but there are again interesting opportunities. We would highlight the Israeli natural gas names, like Leviathan and Energy, and as as fantastic opportunities, as well as uh, Pemex, 
which, uh, you know, certainly is a very large capital stack as well. Um, converts are, 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 you know, again, it's probably a, a, a B minus in terms of opportunity. There's, there's certainly things to do uh, there. And I think we're going to see a lot more of traditional high yield issuers accessing that marketplace in 2024. So I think that answer will change as we see more opportunities um, from kind of the traditional traditional companies. So digging in a little bit there, just in terms of how, how do you all express those exposures? Specifically, you mentioned uh, ESG is one area that, that you guys have focused on. And I'm sure there's there's quite a few inefficiencies that have popped up that you guys have been seeing. So I'm wondering, like, how you guys take advantage of some of those more structural changes that have gone on oh, absolutely. in the markets over the past, like, you know, five, ten yeah, years. Yeah, you know, ESG is certainly something that we pay attention to. Uh, we want to understand what the market is baking into the price of a security. And we will add additional compensation to invest in businesses where we think that, uh, ESG, um, an overhang in terms of ESG creates a, a dislocation opportunity. I think there are a lot of also factual inaccuracies coming out of the uh, ratings firms like an MSCI. Uh, we've identified a number of companies that we invest in where the um, information around the types of businesses that these companies engage in are, are inaccurate. And they preclude a lot of investors from, from purchasing this debt. So from our perspective, that creates an interesting opportunity because the discount to intrinsic value will eventually get collapsed within fixed income because you have a stated contractual coupon and um, final maturity. The other thing is when a company engages in some type of behavior where their rankings get downgraded to, let's say, bottom decile from an ESG perspective, or they acquire a business in a sector that is, um, you know, again, treated negatively from, from an ESG perspective, uh, that creates opportunities because you have forced sellers in our marketplace with managers that run dedicated ESG strategies. So it's just another tool in our toolkit in terms of how we price risk and uh, how we take advantage of micro inefficiencies in the marketplace. And I think it's going to continue to grow. And then the last thing I'd say in terms of ESG is, you know, we were very early in terms of highlighting a lot of greenwashing uh, going on, uh, particularly from companies with issuing green bonds and sustainable linked notes that uh, really didn't have any teeth to them. And so we're, we're paying a lot of attention to what types of additional compensation we're going to receive if companies don't hit their KPIs. And if we can get green for free, uh, we'll absolutely take advantage of that. But typically, we're not paying up for it. So uh, are there any areas, though, where you see like over the next couple of years where uh, there could be like a, a new disconnect, like you're talking ESG and, and some greenwashing here? Is there something more structural on your end where you could see... Uh, a new disconnect forming? Well, the biggest disconnects that we're going to see, and I think what gets us very excited about the longer term prospects of managing capital in this asset class is the growth of passive. That is a fantastic opportunity from our perspective. We love to see more passive capital coming into the marketplace because they're technical buyers and sellers and they're easy to identify from a trading perspective. 
we we understand where they execute, which are in the electronic trading platforms, and we understand why they're doing what they do. So if you understand that uh, your your counterparty in a negotiation is a forced buyer or seller, you can extract maximum value in terms of pricing. And uh, you know, so I think that's going to be an area of continued dislocation. And I think the other uh, interesting dislocation is the growth of the multi-manager hedge fund model and uh, the, the long short credit hedge funds that, uh, you know, kind of all act in a somewhat similar type of manner. That's uh, very interesting from our perspective as well, because we have a time arbitrage advantage relative to those managers that manage on a daily, weekly, monthly P&L and where we're thinking about owning a business through full market cycles. So let's, let's maybe actually dig into both of those, because I think it, those are both really interesting and sort of fascinating mechanics there. I think the passive one, right, and, and here we're talking, uh, I guess we're predominantly talking ETFs and maybe a little bit less so mutual funds, though. The mutual funds are a, a sort of an asset class and sort of constant decay, it seems, these days. Uh, and so when you think about that, like maybe help us understand a little bit more clearly in terms of how you sort of look at that. Is it just because they're all piling into the same names and they're sort of leaving, you know, breadcrumbs on the table, so to speak? So, you know, the, the people that don't get to play in that party end up with an incremental discount or how, how do you sort of manifest that inefficiency? Yeah, let's walk, let's walk through maybe an example that I think highlights this particularly well, right? So if you think about rising stars, the, the upgrade trade, and then the fallen angels, the downgrade trade, right? So as a company gets downgraded to high yield, you go from a larger buyer base and in investment grade to a smaller buyer base and high yield, you would expect spread widening. Well, because of a lot of market technicals, that, that may not be the case. So an example of that would be Nissan when they got downgraded earlier this year to high yield. The majority of Nissan paper was 144A securities, which were off index and IG. So it was actually an off index IG name that when it came to high yield became a very large issuer in the <laughs> high yield marketplace. And so you have the passive players that have to buy. So you actually created a technical buyer and spreads tightened on the way down. Then they got Fitch to rate the company <laughs> and subsequently went right back into investment grade and lo and behold spreads widened when they went back into investment grade because these ETFs had to all sell it right all over again. <laughs> so I think that you know that that's an example certainly um, and then you got to think about um, again index movement. I think one of the key highlights of why spreads have tightened massively in high yield over the last three weeks besides the capital inflow was the shift of Ford going into investment grade. Mm -hmm. you know, Ford's the largest borrower in the high yield marketplace, big liquid double B cap stack. So um, your large real money managers have to recycle that capital into other, you know, primarily liquid double Bs. And so that creates this technical demand there. But the interesting thing is with the ETFs, like, look, they have to be relatively transparent. They have creation and redemption baskets. Um, so you can go online and you can look at how the ETFs positioned relative to its index, what bonds they need to buy and sell. And then you see how they transact in the marketplace um, through the electronic trading platforms. And again, you know, we, we have the ability to meet them where they want to be. It's a perfect marriage between us. They want liquidity. We want alpha. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're typically happy to kind of take the other side there. And the growth just continues to go. And I think what you learn living in this asset class is that it is a less liquid asset class. And if you want to deploy 
large-scale capital, meaning billions of dollars in a relatively short period of time, you're going to have to use things like CDX. You're going to have to use the ETFs. You're going to have to use total return swaps. Um, and, and so you feel those capital flows. And, you know, again, uh, it, it's one of these things where, you know, we feel like uh, we, we can take advantage of knowing the other side of the trade. So maybe talking about some of those derivatives real quickly, uh, since you bring them up. I mean, so I guess it's, so when you're looking at it from that standpoint, are you looking at those as sort of instruments that like, hey, listen, we're going to backfill that with a cash position when the market sort of allows us to and we just need to get the exposure today? Or is it something where it, it, it becomes sort of an asset unto itself? From our perspective, we, we don't typically use derivatives. Uh, we're, we're 100% cash bonds in, in the mutual funds that we manage. Um, and I, I think it's a very differentiated approach. It certainly impacts the scalability of our strategy. We're not trying to be a $50 billion uh, manager, um, but we pay a lot of attention to how those instruments are trading, particularly CDX and all the variations of it relative to cash bonds. And then certainly we're paying attention to the underlying CDS of individual securities that we're investing in and whether or not their positive or negative basis kind of package is being put on by our competition. I mean, that that's the, the nice thing is uh, we're, we're happy to supply liquidity uh, to put on packages that have no relevance to us as long as we're buying or selling at an attractive uh, price relative to where we think the risk of an individual name and security is. Interesting. So I guess, uh, you know, and then maybe piggybacking on the on the sort of the long short, the, the structured funds guys, uh, you know, I guess trying to understand similarly there in terms of, you know, is it mostly because they've got things paired off and so they, they're sort of time constrained in terms of how they can sort of move around the portfolio? Like what's the what's the things you're looking to capitalize on there? Typically momentum. I think momentum is probably the biggest factor that we're looking to capitalize on. So, again, when you kind of peel back the onion and you think about market structure, um, as we were talking about the growth of passive, passive is still a relatively small component of the overall asset class, but it's a much bigger component of the trading volume of the asset class. So, you know, if uh, you and I were engaged in negotiation around a price and bond, let's say a bond was 99 par, uh, and we're going back and forth and we're trying to meet in the middle at 99 and a half, well, if the high yield ETFs trading at a substantial discount to NAV and they're looking for liquidity, uh, they're willing to sell potentially below 99. So if that trace print comes out and shows 98 and three quarters, well, no, you and I are then going to have to stop our negotiation and we're going to have to re-enter potentially one of us is most likely walking away, which is really problematic from uh, underlying breadth of liquidity in the marketplace. But what ends up happening is that trace print shows up and then the next trace print shows up and it's a little bit lower. And so that probably sparks, um, you know, a flag uh, at, at a number of these managers and you see the momentum, you see, okay, well, this security is trading down, but it's trading down on relatively low volume. I'm going to attach some type of story to why the credit is trading lower and I'm going to short that security. Um, and, and typically it's in relatively small size, but a number of, uh, a number of the pods will do the same type of trade and they're winning on the way down as the, as the bond price continues to go lower. But, uh, at a certain point, it becomes difficult to purchase that security back as, as it gets to a point where, again, nobody in the real money community that um, 
owns the security, has done the fundamental credit work, believes that the price is accurate to reflect the relative risk of the business as well as the bond structure. So it becomes difficult to kind of cover. And so from our, our perspective, if we've done the, if we've done the work, if we think we have an information and analytical advantage, and then we can layer in time arbitrage where we're happy to hold a security for years, we're happy to hold a security until it matures, uh, then it provides an opportunity for us to meaningfully increase our position sizes as the discount to intrinsic value widens. So, so John, moving on to the topic of duration, I'm curious what your mentality is when you're when you're going into these trades. Where where do you think about being in the curve, or also maybe even in the cap stack for for some of these companies that you're investing in? Yeah, I mean, I would say outside of like a small period in COVID and uh, the beginning of the GFC and my you know 15 plus years of investing in credit. I haven't seen more dislocations than I see today. And what is particularly fascinating is, right, we, we typically don't stay in inverted yield curves and meaningfully inverted yield curves, which we have been for, for some time at this point. So given that, and given that you've seen relatively um, flat credit spread in investment grade and in high yield to a degree as well, there's been a ton of opportunity in the front end of most credits, right? Uh, so the, there's a lot of opportunity there to just carry. And then where we want to take our duration, we, we say we, we take our spread with little duration and our duration with little spread. So meaning that, you know, if, I, if I'm buying kind of the lower rung, higher yielding securities, double digit yielders, single B, triple C issues, we typically want to stay short because that eliminates a number of variables that can get you into trouble. And if you're at the front end of the stack, most likely you're, you're going to be okay. Um, and then when we take the real duration, we want to take it in names where we see meaningful opportunity for spread compression. Um, so again, you're thinking on the investment grade side, the things that we like right now, the uh, Capital One's Discover, Synchronies of the world. Um, we want that DTS there. Um, but we're, we're pretty simple uh, about how we manage duration. As yields go up, we buy a little bit more. And as yields go down, we sell it. And we typically manage duration, you know, plus or minus a year in terms of the benchmark. Um, but right now, you know, you're seeing meaningfully inverted curves. You're seeing really steep curves. When we're looking at Altice France as an example, uh, you know, the secured curve, the front end is meaningfully out yielding. So you've got an inverted curve. Well, if you go front pay and you pick more yield, yes, you have to pay dollar price, but you're still buying substantially below par. And we think you're, you're well covered at the, the secured level. Um, but you also have a lot of cap stacks that um, either invert uh, and re-steepen or uh, are extremely steep. And so in those situations where you're, you're very steep and you're paid potentially a lot of money, uh, a lot of yield to, to extend out, then, then we'll do it there. Yeah, I guess so maybe building on that. And I, I think you sort of alluded to the answer there as you were talking through on Altice. But I guess... When you're doing your work and sort of looking through the different names, you know, and, and thinking about where you're going to take that exposure, is the analysis more like, hey, listen, we like it. We know we're going to get paid back or we feel pretty confident we're going to get paid back. Or are you thinking about sort of what's the right compensation for the liquidity in this name or the beta that I'm expecting out of this name, et cetera? Because, you know, those inverted curves can be fun until they file. And then all of a sudden you get a 30 point haircut <laughs> on day one. 
uh, and then you're waiting through the process to, to try and get paid back. So how, what's the what's the process in terms of, you know, the due diligence side of things? Yeah, exactly. You know, I think we underwrite credits like uh, in a manner where we're, we're, we're slow to hire, fast to fire, meaning that we, we take our time with, with names and we've done a lot of work, a lot of analysis, uh, typically before a company enters the portfolio. And then we're consistently looking at that entity. So when you have a situation, whether that's a bad earnings report or some type of headline arise, we can move a lot faster than, than our competition. So what we're trying to do first is repayment of principal, right? That, that, that's credit 101 is you got to get paid back. And so, uh, you know, we, we need to make sure that we're investing at a level that we feel like we're creating the entity where we're covered. And what's fascinating today, and using Altice as an example, if you use the 27s, the 8 and 8s, the 27 trading at 83 cents on the dollar, 15% yield, we just need to get paid back 83 cents, right? Par is fantastic. Um, and if we can carry along to that ultimate event, uh, you know, it's not a bad outcome. Bankruptcies aren't necessarily a bad thing, right? I think that's kind of one of the the misnomers of the, of the asset class, but we don't think they're going to file. And we think we're certainly covered on the, on the secured level there. So um, we're thinking about dollar price entry. Um, we're thinking about the levers that an entity has to make sure that they can pay us back. And in the case of Altice's example, I mean, there's going to be some asset sales. This is really, I think, a perfect example of, uh, you know, uh, an individual in Drahi who use leverage very aggressively for the better part of, uh, you know, multi-decades to build his empire. And now the cost of capital is coming back to haunt him as, uh, you know, the underlying business trends are changing. And so you've got to change your tune instead of debt fueled M&A, it's asset sales to pay down debt, right? The, you got to pay the piper and, um, you know, you're in a fairly tricky situation right now. So we're, we're looking at that. And then I'd highlight another one like First Quantum, would be one where if you look at the 2025 front pay bond, uh, it's a little bit of an inverted stack um, at this point in time and the higher dollar is in the front end, but they've got the liquidity right now to take out the bond. They've got access to potentially securing assets um, and a lot of different liquidity sources to make sure that you can get paid back for the 2025 maturity. If a lot of things went wrong in Panama and potentially even in Zambia, uh, down the road, the 2031s might get impaired, but I think the probability of the 25s getting impaired is extremely low. So turning to uh, something that Noel briefly brought up uh, earlier around rates volatility that we've seen you know, over the past couple of months, geopolitical tensions, and also even like the regional banking crisis earlier this year, for you, when you're dealing with those, those moments where volatility goes through some bigger spikes, like what's what's your um, thought process regarding like overall uh, capital allocation? Are you are you getting pretty aggressive during those times or do you see it as a time to get a little bit more defensive and make sure that your positions are, are solid in those those moments? No, it's a great question. And I think uh, the regional banking crisis highlights uh, our mindset as a team, um, you know, that, that basically happened on uh, Thursday, Friday and then into the weekend uh, with Signature Bank also. Uh, getting put into receivership. So a lot of, a lot of moving parts. So, so step one is risk mitigation. And so we're looking through our entire portfolio uh, during the regional bank crisis and we're saying, okay, we need to re-underwrite every single credit in an environment where banks don't lend. What does that look like? So 
identify the, the companies that have front-end maturities that potentially are problematic if capital markets are closed for a period of time. Obviously, we, we owned regional banks um, and, and uh, businesses that were exposed. So we wanted to pay attention to what we thought the intrinsic value was there. You, you see in SVB as an example, there's hold code cash. Um, so we're looking across banks and identifying hold co assets relative to opco. Um, and so step two is opportunity identification. And in that case, it's if banks don't compete, who wins? And it's the consumer lenders. So we own businesses like progressive leasing, uh, which is virtual lease to own or first cash which is pawn shops. Um, those are the types of businesses that are going to benefit from a much wider funnel of much better customers as regional banks pull back on the lending lever. And you see it in the equities and the bond performance of, uh, of a number of those businesses post SVB. They're the beneficiaries. And what we end up seeing, uh, Sam, is that as uh, volatility enters the market, liquidity dries up and it's a fantastic opportunity because bid ask spread widens and you've got the ETFs getting created and redeemed aggressively uh, to where you can meaningfully change the price of the security uh, in a short period of time. And when bonds act like equities and we don't think it's a bond story, that's when we get really excited and we always want to have liquidity available to take advantage of those dislocations. So we're much more active when volatility enters the market. And then you, you also brought up earlier uh, the supply and demand uh, balance for, for corporate bonds. So where, what do you see as like the, the implications there? And, and also like where specifically are you seeing some of those, those imbalances popping up? Yeah, so if you think about high yield, um, in particular, what we're seeing right now is issuers balk at paying 9, 10, 11% for secured issuance. And, and really, the high yield market's not open for, for triple C issuers at this point as well. So that limited supply um, is a fantastic tailwind because as soon as you get any demand or uh, not a meaningful amount of demand destruction, you're in a position where you do have a reasonable coupon that is getting uh, accrued and paid out on a you know, quarterly or semi-annual type of basis. And cash builds very quickly in this market. So if you don't see primary issuance, then you see secondary spreads grind tighter. And I think that's really been kind of the, the, the wind at the back of the asset class for, for some time. And I don't see that changing materially um in in 2024 i think issuance will be up relative to what we've seen in 23 and certainly in 22 but relative to where we were even in 18 and 19 i think we're, we're still not going to approach that level and it, it's a positive it's a positive technical for for the space yeah it's been interesting to certainly watch uh issuance this year and, and even more recently a lot of the 24 and 25 calendar getting targeted from a refinancing activity it's a kind of like the, the running joke I always have with people when they start kind of screaming about maturity walls. And I'm like, I've never I've never actually gotten to a maturity wall. Right. Except for maybe 2001. But uh, maybe changing gears a little bit and, and perhaps a little bit outside of the bailiwick uh, of what you do every day. But it's certainly an adjacent asset class that's attracted a lot of attention these days. And, and I, I would suspect does have knock on impacts into the leveraged loan space and to the corporate markets. That being private credit, uh, how do you think about sort of the the growth that we've seen there, particularly on the direct lending side, because that's going to be the part that's really 
uh, sort of adjacent to to the traditional high yield space. Do you think it's having any impact in terms of you know demand within the space or impacting risk premiums, et cetera? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, it took high yield forty years to get to a trillion dollars into private <laughs> credit. Uh, you know, four or five years really. So. Um, you know, what we would say, and Silicon Valley Bank was an example of this, but, you know, beware of fast growing financial asset classes or financials, uh, because typically uh, it's, there's going to be some problems, right? So it's not an asset class that's been battle tested. You know, it didn't really exist during the GFC. Um, and it was kind of in the infancy uh, during the beginning of COVID and COVID was so quick. So I think the first thing as it relates to what we were just discussing is private credit is fighting its way into the broadly syndicated loan market and, and, and competing against high yield managers for deals as well. I mean, we saw it with Carvana, we saw it with Sabre Holdings fairly recently. It's going to extend the cycle. That's the first thing. And I think it's underappreciated, uh, you know, from kind of the macro community is the fact that, look, it, private credit is going to come in, deploy large amounts of capital with somewhat of teaser rates. It's high interest, but a lot of times a percentage of it's going to pick for the first couple of years. So it allows a business like Carvana that was burning cash to potentially inflect to cash flow, uh, cash flow growth. Same thing with Sabre Holdings. Um, what it will eventually do, and we're in stage one uh, of the cycle for private credit, which is covenant modification, covenant relief. Stage two is the loan modification. So we'll change the terms. We'll extend the terms out. Um, amend and pretend. We've seen it in loans. We've seen it in high yield. It's it's going to follow the same theme. Stage three is the um, ultimate default and lower recovery as a function of a lot of liability management exercises, a lot of super priming uh, types of deals going on in these structures, and that's probably you know eighteen to twenty four months out at this point. But I think what is particularly interesting is the opacity of the asset class, right? So in high yield, we're typically dealing with public companies. Certainly from our vantage point, we tend to skew public. So you see the equity price. You see a company's equity is down 50, 60, 70%. You see the bond price moving. You see a company getting downgraded. You have all these events and there's a lot less jump risk. I think there's going to be a meaningful amount of jump risk in private credit. And I think it will be interesting to me to see if regulators really start to pay more attention to the space. I mean, the fact that, um, you know, BDCs can borrow at levels that look very similar to large regional banks is very interesting to me um, at this point in time as well. But I think there'll be huge differentiation between the big platforms that have BDCs, have the analyst teams, uh, to go into workout situations, have the additional capital dry powder to uh, help fix situations, put in equity injections to make sure companies make it through, as opposed to, um, you know, the proliferation of a lot of smaller lenders that I just don't think have that um, operational skill set plus the, the capital behind them. And the, the, the focus on sectors you know if you think if you look at high yield we've got a lot of commodity exposure if you look at private credit it's got a lot of tech tech exposure and i think tech is going to go through its energy crisis in the next uh year here i mean we're already kind of in the stages of um tech companies that that, that don't generate cash flow and loans that were based on annualized recurring revenue not ebitda or cash flow or even adjusted ebitda 
I, I think you're going to have some real problems. Yeah, it's really interesting when you talk to folks on the private credit side, the direct lending side. I mean, there's a lot of talk about vintages and certainly some of the earlier vintages maybe being a little bit more problematic. But these days, just the size of the equity checks that are getting cut because so much of the money is flowing into the LBO space uh, that, you know, the, the equity coverage piece is pretty substantial. But, you know, it will be certainly an interesting space to see how it evolves I do want to come back to, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that you alluded to before and, and I think is really kind of fascinating when we've talked in the past, uh, and that's sort of more of the market structure and the, the leveraging of the electronic trading because, uh, you know, if I'm recollecting correctly, uh, you know, your team, uh, Brandywine in particular, seems to really capitalize on, on some of the, the opportunities that those systems create. So I guess maybe talk to me a little bit about one, how you think about sort of the evolution in terms of how the market's changing, moving from phones to computers, number one. Uh, and then number two, sort of how you, you know, leverage that uh, uh, for your investor base. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, if you think about high yield in particular, uh, you know, it's probably 10 years behind treasuries, which are 10 years behind equities in terms of electronification, but it's certainly growing quite meaningfully. We were very early adopters of electronic trading and uh, the electronic trading counterparties, you know, our largest counterparties market access, they're the biggest player in the space um, and they're continuing to grow share. And it's a fantastic opportunity for our clients because the bid ask spread that they charge, uh, the VIG that they charge relative to bid ask spread uh, is certainly a lot lower, right? So when there's competition, uh, it leads to better pricing outcomes. I, I think what we do um, is very different than, than most market participants, and uh, it's we're consistently responding to liquidity in the market. Uh, we want to be a liquidity provider where we think we have an information and analytical advantage where we're dealing with a technical buyer or seller, and it's easy enough to identify generically who you're trading against uh, in the marketplace. And so we use it as effectively echolocation. Uh, as the market's moving, we're consistently seeing BWICs and OWICs uh, across a multitude of electronic trading platforms. We're comparing it to the levels that we're seeing from uh, the sell side. And uh, we're formulating what we think the price of a security, the best price we can possibly execute at from either a sell or a buy uh, is triangulating all that information. And so you really have a much better feel of kind of what's going on, particularly as volatility spikes in the marketplace. And so I think that, uh, you know, I think that we're going to continue to see growth of electronic trading. I think um, that that that's certainly here to stay. I think there'll be consolidation in the space because having four or five different systems up is, is just simply not... Um, something that is long-term structurally going to make sense, but uh, it, it does present a lot of interesting, unique opportunities. So just on the high yield piece of that, right, in terms of electronic trading, I think I've, I've seen some data that it's about a third of the market now. And I guess given the structure of the high yield market, where you tend to have smaller issuance sizes, you don't necessarily have as much sort of turnover volume, et cetera. Is there sort of a cap in terms of how big that can grow, number one, and then number two, since you mentioned echolocation, uh, would you see yourself more as an orca, a dolphin, or a bat? Definitely not a bat. Um, 
I'm going to go with uh, an orca. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of Shark Week, I guess. So, um, <laughs> yeah, um, so I, I would say uh, right now we're in the growth stage. And certainly if you're trying to trade large sizes in high yield, you're going to use the dealer community. Um, you you want to make sure that you're not giving up information and, and uh, making sure where that kind of information is going. And so size, real blocks uh, still kind of trade the old school way. But I think we are seeing growth um, in the ability to transact in traditional kind of bite sizes, call them between one to $5 million um, in terms of market access. So, or uh, a number of the other uh, electronic trading platforms. So we're just kind of in the growth phase right now. It'll take it'll take a lot of time, but I think um, a lot of the market participants are trying to figure out ways to um, increase the size that you're able to do. And it really, the workaround for that so far has been the portfolio trading where you, instead of trading a hundred million of one bond, you're trading a hundred, one million dollar increments on a, on a portfolio trade. So getting to the, the tail end of the conversation here, I'm, I'm curious what uh, in the years ahead, what, what has you the most worried right now uh, out of the landscape? You know, I, I feel like I've got a couple of things coming in terms of liquidity, regulatory backdrop, uh, maybe the economy, like what, what's keeping you up at night? Well, you know, we talk about maturity walls in the high yield corporate space. I mean, the treasury maturity wall is probably what's keeping me up more than uh, more than anything here. I mean, we're going to have to roll over a lot of low priced, <laughs> low priced securities into a higher price type of environment. So I think really, um, you know, when we think about let's take a, like a five to seven year type of view. We're going to have a recession, clearly. Uh, you can't avoid recessions, and recessions are not bad things. And I think in this cycle, we cut, but we don't cut particularly deep um, because I think it's a shallow recession. And certainly the Fed doesn't want rates at zero. You want to have the ability to move, adjust monetary policy. But what gets me nervous is then if we continue to stay in a more elevated, higher interest rate type of environment, what does that do to the uh, fiscal balance sheet? And do we see um, yield curve control? Do we see a lot of financial engineering coming out of uh, the Treasury Department? So I, I think that's what really keeps me up at night. Um, from a corporate perspective, it's an iterative process. I, I, like I said, you know, private credit will have problems, but it's not a huge marketplace. It's not subprime mortgages. Um, so it'll be a blip, blip on the radar in terms of uh, issues. And then uh, on the flip side of that, just in terms of where you're most optimistic, uh, where, what are you seeing as, as the big driver uh, for the corporate space? Well, it's, uh, it's management teams working for bondholders now. Again, like uh, we're going to see less M&A. We're going to see less share buybacks. We're going to see less dividends. And oh, by the way, uh, we're probably taxing corporations at a higher rate on a go forward basis. I, I think that's most likely going to, <laughs> to occur in the next five years. And so if you think of the starting yields that you're getting, uh, you know, it, uh, what has me excited is savers are actually benefiting uh, from this type of environment, right? It, it was savers being punished for the better part of the last two decades. And uh, the YOLO trade uh, made a lot of sense. And I think now you're paid to be patient in in fixed income and it's nice for people to get a more traditional 
uh, 60-40 allocation, reduce risk because they aren't being pushed out the risk curve because of global central bank uh, monetary policy. So let's just wrap with a question that Sam asked me, I think yesterday. Uh, and, and I gave him my answer, but I don't think he trusts me. So, and probably not. rightly so. Uh, he said, what do you think about duration here? So that's to you. <laughs> what do I think about duration? Uh, you know, it's interesting, right? I think, uh, and I was having this conversation with other folks um, uh, internally uh, over the last couple of days, and uh, I think we probably put in the local highs. I don't think that necessarily means the high highs. Uh, I think what you're going to have to look to to get that confirmation is the BOE uh, and the ECB starting to cut. If if they do, I think we've kind of put in the local or the, the all time highs for for a meaningful period of time here. So I think you're supposed to take some duration. Certainly, what gets me nervous and ten year duration is totally fine. Thirty year gets me nervous because of um, political ineptitude, right? We, we saw that <laughs> happen in, in the UK. Um, we've certainly seen Italy push in terms of government deficits. We've seen the Netherlands do that, and they're in a fine fiscal position. So I think that that's uh, what gets me nervous, right, is do we run higher fiscal deficits? Do we kind of, you know, shoot ourselves in the foot here? Um, and so I think you could see some, you know, meaningful steepening of the the yield curve and, and so I, I think you're much better served in the five ten year part but it, it's totally fine at, at this point in time see sam i was right all right so listen that's great uh john certainly been a lot of fun having you by always great to get your market thoughts on behalf of sam and myself thank you once again and to our listeners thank you and until next time this has been credit crunch <laughs> <laughs>